Hi, I'm Jonathan Burke, Professor of Finance at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And I'm Jules van Binsbergen, a finance professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And this is the All Else Equal podcast. Well, welcome back, everybody. We received some pretty good news in the last week that we won a Silver Signal Award. When this episode airs, it'll be a one-year anniversary of the podcast, and it's very satisfying. What do you think, Jules? I think we had a fantastic year. I really enjoyed the guests we've had, and of course, we're very happy with the award and that we were honored in that way. It's very gratifying, and I'm sure our listeners had something to do with that because we were finalists, and then there was a vote. So presumably, our listeners voted in our favor, and so... Thank you all for doing that. Yes, thank you very much. Okay, today we're going to talk about risk, Jules. Yes, we're going to illustrate why risk plays a central role in all of our lives and is part of all the major decisions that we make in our life. And in keeping with most of our podcast episodes, we're going to stay away from talking about the obvious role of risk in our lives, but rather concentrate on the subtle issues that I think many people don't see in the role of risk in the economy. Now, obviously, mitigation of risk through, say, insurance companies and other institutions has brought immeasurable benefits to many people. But we think that there are many decisions and many situations, particularly economic situations, where risk plays quite a subtle but important role. It's an important driver of the outcomes that we see. Let's start with what I think is the most important insight in this episode which is the idea of diversification. And let's think about that in the context of two kinds of insurance companies. Let's think that in the context of a fire insurance company and an earthquake insurance company. So the main difference between these two insurance companies is the types of risk that we're being confronted with. If we have a well-functioning fire department in our town, then the event of Jonathan's house burning down is quite uncorrelated to the event of my house burning down. Whereas for an earthquake insurance, if we live in the same area, if an earthquake hits, either both our houses are hit by that same earthquake or not. And so the difference between these two types of risk is something what we call diversifiable risks versus undiversifiable risk. The fire insurance is an example where if we pool together our risks, we can diversify away our individual exposure to that risk. So let's be uh, more explicit about this and let's think about this. So imagine we all live in a town together and we get together and form a mutual insurance company. So imagine I have a choice. I can either get together with all the other members of my town and the deal I'll have with them is if any one of their houses burns down, I will contribute my share to rebuild the house or I can self-insure my own house. Clearly, The risk I face in these two scenarios is very different. If I self-insure my house, then I'm fully exposed to the house burning down. Most of the time, I don't have to pay anything. But if my house burns down, I lose my whole house. Indeed. On the other hand, if we mutually insure the houses, every single year, I'm going to have to pay something. We call that the insurance premium. And that's going to be a small amount of money. And I know that I will have to pay that amount of money. So in that sense, I'm not facing any risk. And in fact, the more people that are insured, the more people that live in the town, the more certain I will know the amount that I will have to pay every year. And with a large enough town, 
I literally have removed all the risk. I know that there's a certain amount of money I will pay every year, and there will be no uncertainty or very little uncertainty in that money. Whereas if I elect to not be part of the mutual insurance company and I instead elect to insure my own house, then I'm fully exposed to risk. I do not know whether my house will burn down. If it doesn't, I will owe nothing. If it does, I will lose my whole house. So now let's compare that to the earthquake. So does that same mechanism work for the earthquake? Well, so now let's imagine we all mutually insure against earthquakes. Again, earthquakes are not a very rare events most of the time. Even in the mutual insurance, I won't have to pay anything. If the earthquake hits, though, everybody's house is hit by the earthquake. So it's as if I was insuring my own house. The amount that I would have to pay would be the amount of my house. So I have not removed any risk in that situation. The risk in the mutual insurance company with earthquakes is almost exactly the same as if I insured myself. It's in some sense, it's almost a miracle. In the fire insurance case, just by making a deal with everybody, I can remove the risk. Nobody in the town faces risk by writing this contract. Whereas in the earthquake insurance case, I can't do that. Now, let's add two notes to the argument, though. So the first question, I think, which is an interesting one, is why do we have earthquake insurance to begin with then? Because it doesn't it seem still very risky? If a big earthquake would hit California, aren't you worried that despite the fact that you have earthquake insurance, that earthquake insurance will not be able to pay out? Now, of course, there may be some diversification with other regions in the world that you could try to do. That's the first question. The second question is, we made sort of a subtle assumption with this fire insurance example, right? Because we did say that we needed a well-functioning fire department. Now, if the fire department doesn't work very well, most people will be familiar with the great fire in London. It's still possible the whole city burns down. It's not an individual house that will burn down. And we still have this, what we call systematic risk there. You're exactly right, Jules. But I think the first point you bring up is actually the more interesting of the two, because now let's think about how does a earthquake insurance company operate? Well, an earthquake insurance company can't be a mutual company. The only way an earthquake insurance company can operate is if the risk is transferred to somebody. That is, somebody else puts up the capital so that there's enough capital in the company to pay everybody once the earthquake hits. And that capital earns a return. And the return of that capital is really the subject of the next part of this. So now the earthquake insurance company has to put up enough capital. So when the earthquake hits, there's enough money in the company to pay off everybody. And where does it get that capital from? It gets that capital from capital markets to people who would be willing to put their capital at risk. Now, actually, it might seem as if those people would charge a lot of money to put their capital at risk. But if the earthquake occurrence is not correlated with the state of the economy, you can imagine that the people putting up their capital for the earthquake insurance company could also put up their capital for lots of other companies and diversify their investment that way. So Jonathan, that's great indeed. I mean, let's now bring that then to the most important application of diversification, which is how do we put a stock portfolio together in terms of getting a diversified portfolio for our stock investments? So let's think about an investment club. Say we have 20 of us in an investment club and we each can think of two different ways of making investments. One way is each one of us picks one of 20 stocks and we make the investment. And the other one is... We all pick 20 stocks, but we all 
equally invest in the 20 stocks. Yeah, that is going to make a very big difference. Can we make the example even more applicable? Let's say we have 500 people in the investment club and we invest in the 500 stocks in the S&P 500 index. So now on the one scenario, each of the 500 people picks one of the 500 stocks and puts all their money in that one stock, which means that each of us is completely exposed to whatever happens to happen to that one company. In the other example, we pool all our money together and we take that total amount of money, we invest jointly in the S&P 500 index, and therefore we have what's called all of us a diversified portfolio. Now, what's the main difference between two investment strategies? Well, so if we look at the average return of everybody, the two investment strategies are going to have the same average return. But if we look at the level of risk each individual holds, it's much lower when we pool the risk in the S&P 500 index because some of the risk of stocks cancels out. When one stock goes up, another stock goes down. Not always, right? There's a certain amount of risk that is common to the economy. But there's also a certain amount of risk that's not common in the words of finance diversified away. And that's about half. It's a substantial amount of risk that you can remove by holding a well-diversified portfolio. You can leave your expect return the same and just reduce your risk by about half. The annual volatility, as we call it, goes from 40% to 20% in that case. Now, one phrase that I've often heard people say, which I actually like, is that this is one of the few examples where there is a free lunch in financial markets. By diversification, you can get rid of half your risk without giving anything up. So you would be crazy not to do that. Exactly. It's just like fire insurance. When you diversify, nobody else has to hold the risk. So nobody demands a risk premium for holding that risk. So now let's generalize this more to the rest of the economy. Whenever individuals face diversifiable risk, we should try to come up with institutions and encourage people to participate in these institutions to make sure that they try to get rid of that risk. Although there is one important problem, one important trade-off here. So the trade-off is, and this is an all else equal point, is when people take on insurance, their behavior changes. And we have to worry about that. So for example, let's think about the following. Imagine we, we were all young people and we worried about our productivity. How good are we at working in the economy? For most of our listeners that are old, you've probably forgotten this. But when you were young, this was certainly in my case, my biggest fear. Would I be able to put money on the table for my kids? And so that seems like a perfect place to provide insurance. So why don't we have insurance contracts when we're young that says, just pay me the average productivity of my cohorts and then I won't have this risk to face. And actually, there are now a couple of proposals where people are talking about this universal basic income, which essentially says that everybody will get a fixed amount from the government, no matter whether they work or not. So this is not a hypothetical example. There are actually policy proposals that want to go in this direction. And what's the problem? The problem is, if you insure people and just guarantee their income, they won't work as hard. Yeah, so the fundamental trade-off that we're dealing with here is that on the one hand, you want to provide people with insurance so that they're not hit too hard when things don't work out very well. But on the other hand, you still want to incentivize them enough so that they work very hard. And now, obviously, if you give people universal basic income, and there's definitely a level at which point people are not going to be working so hard anymore because they already have a basic income anyway. In the extreme case, 
where we say, look, let's all get together. Let's say our cohort of young people, let's all get together. We know some of us will be successful and some of us will not be successful. So we're all going to just pool what our income and share it out equally and remove all the risk. That works so long as everybody keeps working hard, but they won't keep working hard. If I know for a fact that I'm going to get paid, I will work less hard. And so that undoes the benefit of what otherwise would be a case to diversify risk. So what you just described, Jonathan, really is the reason why communism is an all else equal mistake. If the total amount of resources and the total amount of wealth and income that we can distribute in the economy would stay the same, then doesn't it sound wonderful if we could have this insurance contract where everybody gets the same? But as soon as this starts to affect incentives, and therefore the people that can work hard are no longer working very hard, the total amount of resources and wealth in the economy will not stay the same. And so the places where we've experimented with this system, we've seen much lower income and much lower wealth. Most people don't think of communism this way, but I think of communism, I think of that theory of communism as a theory of insurance, diversifying insurance. In other words, if there was no moral hazard, if people didn't change their behavior, then what communism says, we're all better off pooling because we can remove the risk without anybody holding it. If you make the all else equal mistake of assuming behavior stays the same, then obviously communism is a better system. The problem is there's an all else equal mistake there. There's a fundamental trade-off in the economy between taking advantage of diversifying and the moral hazard that comes with that. I often talk about this when I teach corporate finance as the fundamental trade-off of corporate finance. So what do I mean by that? Well, we can think of two kinds of firms. We can think of a privately held firm with a single entrepreneur. Now that firm is a very efficient firm because the entrepreneur knows that all the decisions that are made in the firm affects his own wealth. So he pays a lot of attention, but the problem is he holds a lot of diversifiable risk. So the alternative is for him to sell the firm, to go public, so he no longer owns the firm. The firm is now owned by diversified shareholders. Now, this is going to be one of many firms they hold. So any idiosyncratic risk in the firm will be diversified away, so they don't care about that. But the problem is those owners of the firm don't have much incentive to make sure that the firm is run efficiently. And the entrepreneur who sold the firm also no longer has an incentive. And so in that case, the firm doesn't run efficiently. On the one hand, you can have a very efficient firm, but then the owners have to hold a lot of risk that they don't necessarily have to hold. They have to hold diversifiable risk. On the other hand, you could have a firm where the owners do not have to hold diversifiable risk, but the problem is they don't have any incentive to make sure the firm's efficient so the firm is run inefficiently. When I teach this, I call that the fundamental trade-off of corporate finance. And if you think about it, this fundamental theorem also relates to a previous episode that we did. Because in one of the previous episodes, we thought about the role of firms in providing insurance to employees. And we talked about the fact that employees that are being hired by firms on average may get lower wages. And the reason why they get these lower wages is that they also get with those lower wages a level of insurance because the firm promises them to keep them hired 
even if their productivity is somewhat lower than what they otherwise would have thought. And that's why we also came to the conclusion in that episode that firms often have employees that are not as good as you would hope. And we asked the question, why doesn't your boss just get rid of these employees immediately? And so the wage includes an insurance piece where the company insures the worker and therefore pays a lower wage than otherwise. And what we didn't talk about in that episode was why don't insurance companies provide this insurance? I mean, why do firms provide this insurance? You don't think of a firm as an insurance company, and obviously insurance companies are specialized in providing insurance. So why is the insurance being provided by a company that isn't specialized in providing insurance? And there, I think, the answer is exactly the moral hazard question, that if you insure workers, they have a less of an incentive to work hard. What firms provide are bosses, people who look over the shoulder of workers, and that way control the moral hazard. So that's why it's optimal for firms to provide the labor market insurance versus insurance companies. So now, Jonathan, we're getting close to the end of the episode. Let's talk a little bit about a completely different application of this idea of diversification and how you deal with risk. And so many people have asked the question, why is it that in richer societies, people have fewer children? Because parents, particularly in the past, they have to choose between two different strategies. On the one hand, you can have a lot of children and you cannot pay as much attention to each of them, or you can have a very small number of children that you invest in very heavily. And so obviously with the humongous decrease in child mortality, today, if you have a child, that child has a very high probability of surviving. And so the risk of losing a child, that sort of risk has essentially disappeared from the equation. And so therefore, I think that in rich societies, you will see that parents will invest a lot in very few children. But that doesn't have necessarily to do with their level of wealth only. Of course, it also can have an explanatory power, but it doesn't have to do with that only because it just has to do with the fact that your child will almost certainly survive and therefore diversification over a large number of children is no longer required. Jules, I actually think the wealth argument is the one that people find so surprising. Normally, the richer you are, the more you consume. And if you think having children, it's a consumption decision. You just choose how many children am I going to have That's based on your wealth. And normally we would say the richer you are, the more children you would have because you have more wealth to do that with. And so this seems to me the only, at least in my mind, logical explanation why it goes the other way. Why do rich people choose to have less kids? And I think clearly risk has something to do with this. In a world with high infant mortality, you can't invest in any single kid because it's too risky. Instead, you follow the diversifiable strategy, where you have lots of kids, you invest a little bit in all of them, versus a world where there isn't infant mortality. You no longer have to take the risk of investing a large amount in one child. And so now that becomes the dominant strategy, and then you don't want to have a lot of kids, because there's a limit to how much you can invest in that situation, because it takes time to raise kids. And so you reduce the number of kids and invest much more in every child. So I think that the key inside of today is that risk plays an important role in the way that we face decisions. And I think that one important thing for everybody to do is to think through where you can diversify away your risk. Because every time you can diversify away your risk, whether it's in your investments or in other areas of your life, if you're not diversifying it away, you're making a mistake. 
So try to diversify the risks that you can to the extent that you can. That applies in business decisions. When you're running a business, how, to what extent, if you have two otherwise identical decisions, but one allows more diversify than another one, you should take the diversification one. Except that if the model has it. So it can be the case where you can diversify away the risk, but on the other hand, people's behavior will change and that could make you worse off. Thanks for listening to the All Else Equal podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. And be sure to catch our next episode by subscribing or following our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more information and episodes, visit allelseequalpodcast.com or follow us on LinkedIn. The All Else Equal podcast is a production of Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and is produced by University FM.